Hello. Today with us, we have Professor E. Michael Jones, editor of Culture Wars magazine, an author of multiple books, among them one of the best books I've ever read personally, Libido Dominandi. Professor, we welcome you to our show. Nolet's Hap, how are you? Thank you. Good to be here. Great. So I would like to start by saying that I, I've read your book, Libido Dominandi, and I was really impressed by not only by the way it was written, but in general, the central concept of it. So if you could summarize Libido Dominandi, what are the central claims it makes as it pertains to the moral degeneracy of the West? Well, uh, the subtitle explains the thesis of the book. It's that sexual liberation is a form of political control. Now, this, mm -hmm. is, this is a paradox because uh, it's always explained as some type of freedom. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the best examples I can give of this, how it's, that's not true, is the Israelis' use of uh, pornography. They invaded Ramallah in 2002, took over the TV stations and started broadcasting pornography. Uh, now, uh, why would they do this? Do they want to bring freedom to the Palestinians? No, it's a weapon. It's, uh, pornography is always a weapon. Uh, it is allowed uh, in our culture because powerful groups want to subjugate less powerful groups. The main powerful group that's involved in this is the Jews. The Jews have always been involved in the promotion of pornography. Before that, they were involved in prostitution on a worldwide scale, wherever they were. Uh, and uh, they are still using it. So over the period of time uh, after World War II, as the Jews became more and more powerful in the United States, they used their political power to undermine all of the prohibitions against pornography in our culture. Uh, the crucial moment came in 1965 when they broke the production code in Hollywood. Uh, within seven years, we had three hardcore pornographic films running in first-run theaters. We have, you can follow this trajectory through the Supreme Court. One Supreme Court uh, decision after another uh, eroded the uh, prohibition against uh, pornography because no one at this point could articulate what I articulated in my book. No one, no one could articulate it. So if you want to give an example of the way people were thinking at the time, uh, you can uh, Type in uh, Alan Dershowitz and William F. Buckley into YouTube, and you'll find Alan Dershowitz, a younger Alan Dershowitz with his big Jewish afro, uh, defending Deep Throat, a pornographic film at the time, and the word he keeps using the term freedom. Well, uh, you go 50 years later, and there's Alan Dershowitz, the same man who was defending freedom, is now standing beside Donald Trump, uh, who's signing a bill making it illegal to criticize Israel on uh, uh, government property or something like that. That's the trajectory that we're talking about here. And the, you, to understand it, you have to understand Jewish involvement. Now, I did not understand Jewish involvement when I did Libido Dominandi. It was only years later when I did the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit that I could connect these dots. But everything I learned later only confirmed what I learned in, uh, you know, when I wrote about in Libido Dominandi, which I wrote about 25 years ago. And the, the crucial 
turning point in my understanding of that was that moment when the uh, Israelis invaded, invaded Ramallah and started broadcasting pornography over the TV stations. They denied it. They always deny that they do things like this. But I gave this speech uh, based on that in uh, Europe. And there were Palestinians in the audience who came up and told me that they were there when it happened. I gave the same speech in Washington. And again, there were Palestinians in the audience who came up and told me that exactly that had happened. So you can't deny it. Now they're trying to push it down the memory hole. Uh, but it is simply a fact that all pornography, anytime it is, it's, it, it is accepted, uh, it, it becomes widespread, it will be used as a weapon. Hmm. So before moving on to the next question, I would like to clarify something because you have, you specifically have received criticism that you are an anti-Semite. And this is something that sometimes may be used in a legitimate way, but in others, I have figured it is just a way to um uh, escape criticism what do you think that why do you think people use that label to to judge you they want to silence you that's their main thing the, the main promoter of this label is a group called the anti-defamation league which mm. got started uh at the beginning of the 20th century in the wake of the leo Frank, frank lynching in the south The Anti-Defamation League is a, a money laundering operation that takes money from Jewish criminals like uh, Meyer Lansky and Mo Dalitz in exchange for protection from any criticism. This is the gist of what we're talking about here. Anti-Semitism is an empty term that gets used to suppress any criticism of Jewish behavior. So you can't discuss the term. It, it was created as a racial term in the 19th century by Wilhelm Marr uh, in a book called Der Sieg des uh, uh, Judentums über das Germanentums. Uh, and uh, it, is a, it is a racial term. I, I have mm -hmm. never used it in a racial sense. I do not believe that Jews are determined by their DNA, by their biological makeup. I don't believe that any human being is determined by his DNA. That is the only concrete meaning uh, of the term, and I don't espouse that. The, the current meaning of the term anti-Semitism is basically anything Jews don't like. Any type of criticism that they can't answer will always be termed anti-Semitism. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. Now, one thing I would like to ask is, your site is called Culture Wars, right? Yes. Who are the adversaries in this war? Well, you, you, have, to, you have to be more specific about the, the battle that's being waged. So, uh, you know, if, if you go back to the period uh, right after World War II, um, You have to understand that at that point, uh, America was a country that was made up of three ethnic groups that were based on three religions. And so America was like Yugoslavia in this regard. The three, the three religions were Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. And the idea uh, behind this, the sociological theory that tried to explain this was called the triple melting pot theory, which said that basically after three generations, no matter where you came from in America, in the world, 
uh, you became one type of American, one of three types, namely a Protestant, Catholic, or Jew. You retained your religion, but you did not retain your native language. Now, you probably have to expand it to include the Orthodox, and you'd have to expand it to include the Muslims, but I think that the same idea uh, still exists. So at this period in American history, uh, the two groups, the Protestants uh, and the Jews, decided that they did not like uh, Catholic political power, and they made an alliance against Catholic political power. The group that uh, did this after World War II was known as Americans for Democratic Action. It was uh, the left, when the left broke with communism, they formed their own group, and it was called Americans for Democratic Action. And these people came, became known as liberals, and the liberals uh, were basically at war, were made up of a group of Protestants and Jews who declared war against the Catholics. Now, this is different. In the 1920s, the Catholics and the Protestants made an alliance against the Jews over Hollywood. So this is a reversal of that, but it still uses the same same groups of people. So at that point, this, these uh, groups of people started working to uh, destroy Catholic political power. And that's uh, the main way they did it to this day was saying that the main categories are race, racial categories, and not ethnic categories. So what they tried to do, and they're still trying to do it to this day, is to erase ethnic identity and replace it with racial identity. Because then racial identity has uh, uh, moral categories implicit in it in a way that ethnic, ethnicity does not. So at a certain point in American history, uh, white was good and black was bad. Now we're in the opposite period where white is bad and black is good. And so what you see is groups like the Jews uh, beginning with the period that I mentioned with the lynching of Leo Frank, uh, creating organizations like the National Advan Association for the Advancement of Colored People to create race war in the United States. That died down. It's called the Black Jewish Alliance. It died down in 67, and it came back again about five years ago when George Soros created Black Lives Matter with uh, $33 million of his money. So that's, that's basically the, the, the central conflict in, in American life. Uh, and it began after World War II. Mm. Okay, thanks for the clarification. I would like to go back a little bit because I forgot to ask you about two people that are central to libido dominandi, and that is Adam, Adam I can say his name, Weishaupt, who was the founder of the Illuminati, and, uh, and Sigmund Freud. Could right. you please expand on what you say about those two very known historical figures. Yes. Gen generally, the word Illuminati gets used in a metaphorical sense, but there was a real organization called the Illuminati, and it was founded by this man, Adam Weishaupt, who was a professor of canon law at the University of Ingolstadt in, in Bavaria. Now, this, the 18th century, this is, he founded it, I believe, in 1776. The 18th century was the century of secret societies, uh, the, the, free, the Masonic Lodge was the quintessential secret society, and Adam Weishaupt decided he was going to take over the Masonic Lodges. Uh, now, he had a particular weapon in mind, and it was called Zeilenanalyse, Zeilenanalyse, uh, which was based on the Catholic practice of 
examination of conscience where you go over your sins before you go to confession. Then you confess your sins. Weishaupt took this and turned it upside down. So normally you would say, what, what is my sin? I, am, I have committed this sin. And so you go to the priest and you say, I committed this sin. And he says, well, the, uh, your sins are forgiven. Go and don't do it again. Well, Weishaupt, instead of the confessor, the priest, he has a controller. And the controller now listens to your confession so he can understand what your vices are. And then he manipulates you through your vices. So it's completely turned upside down. Now, this was a secret society. It, it became public when uh, uh, one of the Illuminati uh, was captured, uh, do had documents that were captured by the King of Bavaria who published them. And the man who published those documents was Augustin Baruel, who wrote a bestseller, an underground bestseller in the 19th century called The History of uh, Memoirs Toward the History of Jacobinism. Now, I, I claim in Libido Dominandi uh, not only that it was an underground bestseller, but that there are certain people who read it, influential people. Lord Byron was one of them. Uh, and uh, Shelley uh, and Byron got together for a famous party in Switzerland in 1816 when there was no summer, and the lady who was there was uh, uh, Mary Shelley, became his wife, Mary Godwin, the daughter of the Rev English Revolutionary, and she wrote Frankenstein based on that experience. The other person who read this was Sigmund Freud. And I'm convinced from internal evidence, Sigmund Freud was very uh, paranoid about his material and his sources. And he burned his papers three separate times so that people would not understand where he was coming from. But it's clear if you read his documents that he had read uh, uh, Barrowell's account of the Illuminati. And then the more you think about it, it becomes obvious because all Sigmund Freud did was turn... Weishaupt's turn Seelenanalyse, which means analysis of the soul, back to its Greek roots, and Freud called it psychoanalysis. Psuche is the Greek word for zela, which is the German word for soul. And so psychoanalysis became a form of control. Now, nobody talked about this, uh, really, until I talked about it in my book. But it's clear that psychoanalysis was a form of control. Uh, now, how, do, how is it a form of control? Well, the, the good story there is uh, the story of Horace Frank, who was an American doctor who wanted to become a psychiatrist. And to do that, you had to go to Vienna and you had to lie down on Sigmund's couch and you had to tell your history. Well, this is like confession, isn't it? Except, again, Freud is the Illuminatus who is going to use this. So during the course of his psychoanalysis, Dr. Frank tells Freud that he's having an affair with one of his patients. Now, all patients are rich patients at this point in history, okay? And Sigmund Freud knows this, and he knows that Americans tend to be richer than Europeans at this point. And so it, it, what he says to Frank is not well, you should stop that because this is a violation of medical ethics to sleep with your patient. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He says, what you should do is divorce your wife and then marry this patient 
and then after you marry this patient, you should take her money and give it to me. Sigmund Freud, make a large contribution to the Psychoanalytic Society. Now, at this point in history, you had two people, uh, Sigmund Freud and his Gentile heir apparent, C.G. Jung, both of whom who are competing for rich American patients. And the battle was won there by Jung, who got uh, Adis Rockefeller McCormick on the couch and then got her brother on the couch. And when her brother got on the couch, he said, guess what? He was having an affair with a chorus girl, and Jung did the same thing. It's part of what psychoanalysis is. It's control of people through the manipulation of their passions. So Jung said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about having an affair. It's, it just shows you're a healthy guy. Uh, and by the way, give me a contribution. And Jung got beat Freud in terms of the money. But I'm saying that this proves that psychoanalysis was a form of control. Mm. Very, very interesting. I would like to quote you from a video of you that I saw, which I believe is extremely interesting. I quote you, America rules through moral corruption by spreading moral corruption throughout the entire world under the pretext of spreading concern about human rights. Could you please expand on that? Well, the best example now is uh, gay rights. So I don't know about Greece, but we are now in the middle of Gay Pride Month. Uh, mm. The month of June is basically you're inundated. You have this uh, sodomy uh, being extolled as the noblest thing that a human being can do. So uh, I was in Berlin a couple of years ago, and uh, I went to. I've been. I hadn't been. I'd been in Berlin in the 1970s when there was a wall down and there was a communist country on the other side. It was completely new now. And I'm riding all around Berlin on a bicycle with a friend of mine, and we come to the American Embassy, which I think is at Potsdam or Platz. Mm -hmm. And there's a bear, okay, which is the symbol of Berlin in the lobby. But the bear has a gay flag wrapped around it, the rainbow flag. Well, this indicates to me that the American government has officially endorsed sodomy. Well, why would they endorse sodomy? Okay, well, the answer is, at that point, that the ambassador, the American ambassador to Germany was a homosexual. So he had a personal stake in this fight. But then he became a, an important figure under Donald Trump, and Donald Trump passed this ridiculous uh, um not a law, but a, 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 some type of affirmation of the government saying that the United States government is now committed to overturning anti-sodomy laws throughout the world. Well, who gave, first of all, who gave the United States the right to meddle in your country and overturn your laws? Who gave us, the United States the right to do that? And secondly, why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that because they know if they promote sodomy, they will weaken the sexual morality of the country, and if they weaken the sexual morality, they will be easier. Those people will be easier to control. I did this uh, the years ago. Uh, the Poles, Polish publishing house, translated libido, libido dominandi into Polish, and I went to the country and did a book tour there. And there were supposed to be all kinds of protests. It didn't happen. Uh, but what did happen? About the, about the abortions. 
about the abortion legislation that was no abortion uh, there, there there was nothing there, there at that point the big issue was gender ideology and the big what? issue was uh homosexual rights when so was it i was in warsaw i began in warsaw in poland oh dear. i've been there too beautiful city okay Krakow is so the first so i get there and they show me this big uh kind of arch over the street there and the arch is all burned so i said well what was that well it was a rainbow arch and the polish patriots set it on fire and burned it okay so this was a protest against american imperialism uh, under the guise of gay rights so i got there just at that time that this battle is heating up so did the book tour there was supposed to be a big protest the church supported me the catholic church supported me and so the protest disappeared and i traveled all around the country and told them the same message which is basically sexual liberation is a form of control and the main point of the main uh, type of sexual liberation that's being promoted now is gay rights and gay marriage so and then i went on television i said any polish politician who supports gay rights is a traitor to the polish people and she he should be treated as such uh and it was well received so i i go next um t about two years later i'm in argentina and i'm talking to a guy who's just older guy philosophy professor he's just really depressed he thinks the situation is hopeless and i'm thinking what should i say to him and i'm checking my email and it turns out i got an email from poland and a guy in poland says to me between your book and the polish bishop statement on gender ideology you defeated gay marriage in poland well, I thought, well, that's good news. So I shared it with this guy. You know, I hope it helped him. But uh, it is true. We did we did stop gay marriage in Poland. Now, the point here is, what what was the result of that? The result of that was that the Poli Polish people, the Polish government now understands something that it didn't understand before, something that the Irish government still doesn't understand, another Catholic country. Okay? And the Polish government, uh, uh, as a result, has a certain freedom that the Irish people do not have. So what, how did that manifest itself? Well, the Polish government has now come out against deplatforming, which is another form of control. In other words, the government realizes they have to take control of the Internet because if the government doesn't take control of it, then private actors with bad intentions will take control of it. And that is precisely what happened to Ireland. They allowed these people, they invited Google in. Well, Google took over. And Google uh, uh, Google is run by the same, uh, what should I say, morality that we've already talked about. Google is full on board with homosexual rights and they will also deplatform you if they don't like what you say about Jews. That is what happened. That's the difference between Ireland and Poland, both of them traditionally Catholic countries. And it was what happens if you don't stand up on the sexual issues, you will be taken over by conglomerates like Google and Facebook and all these other people, and you will have lost your freedom, and you will end up in a situation where you basically do not have a government, which is the situation in the United States right now. It's not the legislatures that make the rules that affect us. It's the big tech corporations. It's big pharma 
that is ruling us now, and we're still waiting for government to wake up to this fact. Very interesting. So, is is the COVID pandemic just an extens- an extension of what you're writing? Is it just another form of control? Yes. Of the population. Yes. Yes. It's very clear. It's very clear uh, to me. If you go look, if you view it historically, for example, so. Uh, In the 1970s, the United States government got involved in population control, uh, which was overt, and they would basically base foreign aid on whether the country would implement population control. So you had people like Anwar Sadat in in, uh, Egypt, uh, the Marcus family uh, in the Philippines, and the Shah in Iran, all of whom were on board with population control. They were all puppets of the Rockefeller family. They were all overthrown by their own people because the people understood. I, I, did I mention, I also wanted to mention Indira Gandhi in India. India. She was murdered by the Sikhs, but she was murdered by uh, a people who uh, basically uh, thought of her as a tyrant because she was a puppet of the Rockefellers. That was, that's what happened to the Shah, 1979, happened to uh, Marcus, and Anwar Sadat was murdered by his own military. So all of those people were gone. Now, at this point, uh, the population controllers have to rethink what they're doing because population control failed. So how do we get the same result but without something overt? Well, you turn, it in, turn population control into medicine. And the best example of that was AIDS, Okay, now AIDS in America was a homosexual disease. Uh, Only homosexuals got it. It wasn't in the population at large, so that's not a good idea. So what we have to do is create something called African AIDS. Now, African AIDS is completely different because heterosexuals get it, and it was created in 1985 at the Bangui Conference in the Congo. And basically, if you had three, three days of diarrhea in Africa, you had AIDS. So if you got up in the morning, you walked out in the street and got hit by a truck in this period of time, it was called African AIDS. Now, I was there in Nairobi in about 15 years ago. And I got there and I said, look, it's all made up. There's no such thing as African AIDS. You have poverty-related diseases like tuberculosis. This is all being renamed. And it's population control. Well, the Africans were like, who does this guy think he is? Who is this Mzungu from America who's telling us this? And I said, well, I, I'm an expert on I'm an expert on African AIDS because I have a PhD. And I have a PhD in American literature, and I specialize in fiction. And African AIDS is fiction. So I'm, a, I'm an expert. Now, 15 years later, I went back to Nairobi. Okay, and not only did I go back to Nairobi, I went back to the Catholic University of East Africa again, and not only that, I was in the same room where I gave that talk on African AIDS, and I walked in, giving, I'm giving another speech, and I said, how many people here were worried that they were going to die from African AIDS? Well, not one person raised his hand. Well, what we have now with COVID is the logical extension of African AIDS, except that now it's the entire world. It's not just Africa, it's the entire world. So there is, uh, 
There's probably some virus. It was probably created in a lab in Wuhan. It got out of the lab. It could have been deliberate. The United States could have launched a biological warfare attack against China. There's evidence of that simply by the fact of what happened in Tehran. Why would uh, China and Tehran uh, have the worst outbreak at the beginning? Well, because they're both enemies of the United States of America. Whatever it is, whatever it is, it got out. Whatever it is, it's not a bullet. It's not an atomic bomb. It has to act like a virus, and a virus is something that affects you. Some people affects some people more than others. I got COVID. I got it last year. I've had worse hangovers in my life than, than the COVID virus. I got over it in a couple of days, and it's not a big deal. But the point is, at this point, it got instrumentalized. And so what happened now is all medical treatment is suppressed. So that when I go and I test positive, what's the doctor tell me? Oh, you take this? No. He says, go home. And if you can't breathe, come back to the hospital. So in other words, if you're on the verge of death, come back, we'll intubate you and you'll die. No medicine. The one thing is, is not, why, are they, why, are, why are they not giving out medicine? What about ivermectin, which uh, has been shown to be effective against this? Well, because they want to introduce a vaccine. This is the plan. The vaccine now, by now, it's clear the vaccine is going to kill more people than COVID. And it's being administered to people uh, on a completely promiscuous and irrational basis. So at Notre Dame University, the university right near here, everybody had to get vaccinated, including the people that had COVID. Well, wait a minute. If you got COVID and you're still alive, it means you're immune. So you don't need a vaccine. So why are you doing it? Well, because it's social engineering. That's what it is. It's not medicine. It's social engineering. And now we're starting to see that the, the vaccine is more dangerous than, than COVID. Uh, uh, because the COVID, who knows what, what COVID was? Who knows what it is? There is some, the people die of diseases. They desire, die of flu. Certain people are vulnerable, older people. Uh, but if you intubate people, they're going to die. That's a death sentence, uh, especially when it's done on a large scale basis where you can't uh, uh, properly care for the people. So all, all I'm saying is that obvi looked at it historically, it's obvious that COVID is the successor of all of these other medical forms of control. Very enlightening, very enlightening views. What is the way to stop this moral downfall? Have we reached the point of no return or can we reverse it? Okay, now when you say we, it, yeah. it, you're talking about, are you talking about individuals or are you um, talking about nations? Now there's a difference here. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're talking about individuals, you can always repent of your sins. It's very mm -hmm. simple. And people did it. Uh, big, in 2019, a lot of people started reading Libido Dominandi, and then there was this widespread protest against pornography. Uh, a lot of people, spontaneous uh, protests on the part of 20-year-olds who simply refused to watch it and engage in that type of activity. This upset the oligarchs, and so Rolling Stone magazine, which is an oligarch uh, thought control uh, device, accuse these people of anti-Semitism because they weren't watching pornography. I thought that was interesting. Are you admitting that Jews control pornography? Yeah, I think you are. Okay. But so it happened kind of spontaneously. 
and and a lot of people converted. And if you want a, a good example of this, Roosh V, uh, the great pickup artist, the Don Juan of our era, who slept with more women than Don Juan, 1003 in Spain alone, is what they said about Don Juan, and Roosh exceeded that. And he's written memoirs about it. He used to be famous for telling guys how to pick up chicks in places like Iceland. <laughs> Go to Iceland, and this is how to do it. Or Denmark, you know. And now he kicked the habit, and I, he told me per, that I, my book had some type of influence on him. So if you're talking about individuals, you can stop now. Uh, and oftentimes, with, with the grace of God, you can stop for sure. Okay, but now we're talking, well, let's talk about countries now. And now we're into a more complex situation. Uh, now, Poland, I've already said Poland, it seems to be, is on the way back. But I, I mentioned this because I wrote a book called Logos Rising about ultimate reality and the history of Logos. And one of the people I dealt with was uh, Vico, John Battista Vico, the Italian philosopher in, from the 18th century. And he had a theory that basically nations were like any living thing, that they come into being, they rise, and then they fall. Okay, now, the big question about Invico is the Ricorso. Uh, you can say, so he said, look at the Roman Empire. Everything he said was based on the Roman Empire. Came into being, got decadent, and fell. But it was replaced by the Holy Roman Empire, which is Christianity in, in Europe. Okay. And the Byzantine, and the Byzantine Empire as well, the Eastern part. Say that again. And the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern part of it, because sometimes you know people forget about it. Yes, yes. yes. So the question is: is is that decline inevitable when it comes to nations? Because it's like asking you: uh, is your decline inevitable? Well, in some sense, it is because you're going to die. Is your mor your moral decline is not inevitable because you can repent. You can always repent, and Christianity provides you a vehicle for repentance and confession and forgiveness of your sins. So it's not inevitable. But is it inevitable when it comes to nations? That's the big question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Vico answers this question. He never. He never really explains whether this decline is, like physical, like sickness leading to death, or whether it's moral. In which case, there's a possibility of regeneration. Because basically, the Roman Empire is doomed. I tend to think that empires are, are not. It's not possible to regenerate an empire because an empire is based on moral decline. Augustine said that. Empires are criminal conspiracies. The American empire is no exception to that rule. It's a criminal conspiracy uh, that is trying to control the entire world. And I'm, I see it's in, it's in a period of decline, and I think the decline is inevitable. And all I can hope for is uh, basically a, 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 a relatively painless transition away from the empire and back to the republic. Mm. Well, I think that America used to have a moral legitimacy while the USSR existed, but after its downfall, I think, yeah, things spiraled out of control. I would like to ask another interesting question, which I really like to listen your opinion about. 
um, and that is what is the political and economic system most compatible to the Christian faith? Um, we have heard claims about Jesus Christ being a socialist. Others have claimed that he is a proto-capitalist of the, some sorts. Does Christianity concern itself with those aspects of our society? Yes, it does. Yes, especially if you're talking about the Catholic Church. And uh, the Catholic Church has always been involved in economic issues. So at the beginning of the money economy in Europe, which was the beginning of the, uh, the end of the Dark Ages, the beginning of the Middle Ages, when people needed money to pay taxes, whereas before all they did was work for a lord, uh, the church got involved in protesting against usury because oftentimes people would have to borrow money to pay taxes and the, the Jews controlled usury and they charged them uh, enormous interest rates and they were always falling into poverty as a result of that. So with the rise of uh, the money economy, you had the beginning of what we would call capitalism. And I've written a book called Barren Metal, which is a history of uh, the conflict, a history of capitalism as the conflict between labor and usury. So these are the two, the two issues, basically. It's a Christian economy, which is based on labor and the valuation of labor, or you can have a Jewish economy, which is based on usury. You can't, have, you can't really have both. Uh, people try to do both. The classic example of someone who tried to do, a country that tried to do both is America, because Alexander Hamilton, who was the first secretary of the treasury, um, uh, basically wrote two letters, one on manufacturing and one on banking. So you, we promoted manufacturing early on, and we promoted banking as well. And they're, they're conflict. You can't promote both of these things at the same time. People would say, well, that's crazy. You have to have, no, no. It's one or the other, because the fundamental question is, what is the source of value? What is the source of wealth? Adam Smith wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations. On the first page of that book, he said, labor is the source of all wealth. Labor is the source of wealth. Labor is the source of all value. And that's a true statement. Karl Marx said it. That doesn't mean that it's false because Karl Marx said it. Pope John Paul II said it as well. And he was no Marxist. I guarantee you that. Okay? So it's true. So the question is, well, what's the other option? The other option is usury. The Jews have always been involved in usury. They are still involved in usury. And this, this conflict in America reached a high point in the 1930s uh, with people like Henry Ford, who was the great industrialist in America, who was the opponent of Wall Street. So you had two options in America. You had Main Street, which was the Midwest and manufacturing, and you had Wall Street, which was Jewish and it was finance, and it was uh, uh, basically usury. Uh, the America, America uh, always consistently turned against labor. It has been the Achilles heel of all English-speaking countries is that they never understand the value of labor, and they're always trying to cheat people out of a decent wage. And that has been the state situation with England. England could never uh, resolve the labor issue, uh, and as a result, Germany did resolve the labor issue. And so the economic system that I'm promoting in my book is called Solidarism, uh, and it's basically German Catholic 
economics. Uh, this uh, primarily based on the writings of Heinrich Pesch, a Jesuit who wrote a huge book and five volumes called uh, Das Lehrbuch der Nationalökonomie. Uh, it is basically claims that economics is a form. It's a form of philosophy. It's moral philosophy. It is not physics, which is what the English always claim because they love Isaac Newton. They want everything to conform to Isaac Newton's uh, Principia about the universe. It is moral philosophy, which means it is all. It involves morality. Uh, morality because it, it comes down to. Uh, basically, two people engaged in some type of negotiation about a buyer and a seller. And in this negotiation, the stronger party will always want to take advantage of the weaker party. And the classic example of that is wages, when you negotiate for wages, because the employer is always stronger than the employee and always tries to take advantage of them. So that's the economic system that I'm proposing. Socialism came about as a reaction to capitalism. Socialism, I said in my book, is like the pus that forms in the body when it gets a disease. It's an, a, a, an immune reaction, a social immune reaction, which then got instrumentalized into a form of a Jewish revolution in the 19th century under communism, under people like Trotsky. But uh, the image that I have of social, Catholic social teaching is basically there's Jesus Christ in the middle, and beside him are two thieves crucified, okay? And the one thief is capitalism, and the other thief is communism. Very interesting. One other thing I would like to ask you is, what would you say is the intrinsic difference in the way that Protestantism, Catholicism, and maybe you could add orthodoxy for Greek viewers, um, the, the three big, big branches of Christianity view morality? Okay, uh, the, the biggest, I'm doing, I'm doing a book right now on, uh, on beauty on aesthetics. And I'm dealing at this point with poetry in England. And the best place you can see this conflict is uh, in England in, in the 19th century. England became a Protestant country when, they, when the arist aristocrats stole the Catholic Church. It was always a looting operation. And as a result, they simply suppressed the local people in the interest of the oligarchs of their day. Because of the absence of Catholicism, you had a kind of spiritual starvation that set in because of the absence of a sacramental system. Now, this did not happen in Orthodox countries, okay, because you had a sacramental system. Something else happened in Orthodox countries. But in terms of Protestantism, Protestantism is in many ways much more important for world history because it, it became the battle over who was going to rule the world was essentially a battle between Catholics and Protestants beginning in the 16th century when Spain basically discovered the New World and colonized the New World and started sending gold and silver back from the New World. Okay, uh, The English, uh, who are always thieves, uh, the, uh, the world... Uh, the English religion is based on theft, as I said. It's based on theft of church property. And so they have a constant propensity to theft. 
It's just part of the English nature. And one of the great manifestations of this propensity was piracy. We have movies about pirates now. They're all Englishmen who are basically in the Caribbean who are trying to steal the gold that's being shipped from Mexico to Spain uh, because it was a very easy way to make a lot of money. So Sir Francis Drake is probably the most famous crook in English history, the most famous pirate. And uh, in his one voyage, he stole enough gold to cancel the entire sovereign debt of England. That's <laughs> one ship. So you can imagine how, how lucrative this is, and that's why the English uh, got involved in theft. Uh, and so as a result, they had to have some type of uh, moral anesthesia because they couldn't really confess because, you know, first of all, you don't confess big sins because they make you a knight. If you steal a spoon, they'll hang you. But if you steal uh, enough to cancel the debt, they'll make you a knight, which is what they did to Sir Francis Drake. So you have this kind of moral, uh, you have a, a kind of sacramental vacuum leading to moral problems. And then uh, at a certain point, you have morality becoming the center of English life. And I'm talking about the 19th century now. There was a decadent period beginning, beginning, uh, beginning with the Reformation. There was decadence in, in English life. And there was moral reform with the Methodists beginning in the middle of the 18th century. And this had a huge effect on English life. And there, historically, I think what happened is that God will reward your country if you engage in moral reform. So what was the reward? The reward was uh, you can now become Catholic if you want. We'll give you a chance. And there was the Oxford movement in the early 19th century, and it was an opportunity for England to become Catholic. Uh, John Henry Newman, Cardinal Newman, was a, one of the leading writers in this movement, and at a certain point he realized, no, it's not going to happen. And so he became a Catholic, and everybody hated him. He was considered a traitor to the English people because he became a Catholic, because England had been at war with Catholicism for centuries. It was their identity. And at that point, the moment passed. It could have happened that England returned to Catholicism. It didn't happen. And so as a result, they came up with a substitute for Catholicism, and it was called muscular Christianity. I'm not making this up. There's an actual term called muscular Christianity and it started in a school, a private school called rugby, and it involved being muscular, actually, literally, being sports, because the English <laughs> created sports at this point. And so you had the whole idea, new idea of the gentleman now was a man who rode or played rugby or did something like that. And I'm a product of this. I row every day in the summer on the St. Joe River because I grew up in Philadelphia, which is a place that was in impregnated with wasp culture and sports. And that was a sport that I picked up in, in, in Philadelphia. So this was, became part of it. Now, it's not going to work. I mean, I'm, all, I'm all in favor of being muscular. I try to be muscular, okay? But it's not a substitute for the Catholic faith because morality is not a substitute for the Catholic faith. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's something that is important for salvation, but we're saved by by faith. Now, we're not saved by faith alone. That was the mistake that Luther made. But we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, who then strengthens us through the sacraments so that we can be successful in leading moral lives. That's what the English tried to do it on their own, and they failed. 
they failed spectacularly. Just look at England now. Uh, and the, the turning point came with a guy by the name of Leslie Stephen, who was part of the Claphamite sect. Of, they were the moral reformers. And he decided, I, I don't believe in this faith anymore, but I'm always going to be a gentleman. I'm going to live and die as a gentleman. Well, what does that mean? Uh, his daughter was Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf was involved in Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury was the promotion of sodomy. And there you saw the whole thing went down the drain within one generation in England. That's the short. There's no, I, I don't have anything to say about morality and orthodoxy. I could talk about orthodoxy, but it's a completely different issue. But that's, that's what I have to say about morality and Protestantism. Do you hear me now? Because we're yeah. a little bit of yeah. Okay. Yeah. Could, could you talk a little bit about orthodoxy? Because our great viewers love to listen to your right. views about right. orthodoxy. The, prob the problem with orthodoxy is not morality, and it's not the sacraments. Okay? Every, everyone has a problem with morality. Okay? That's a, that's a universal problem. That's what human history is pretty much about, the struggle to lead a moral life. Okay? Uh, but the issue with orthodoxy is different. There was always a split in the Catholic Church, or in the Universal Church, between the East and the West. It's the Eastern Empire which speaks Greek, and it's the Western Empire which speaks Latin. And the Roman Empire split down the middle because you couldn't, there were two different groups of people. And so uh, the Greek movement in this regard was north, due north, head due north, and I'm talking about Cyril and Methodius heading to the Slavic countries and basically giving them the Cyrillic alphabet and basically Greek, Greek culture. Um, a crucial point, one of the crucial points in the development of Christianity was the definition of the Trinity. And this was at a time when you had those two groups, very strong, we're still talk, we're talking about half the church, roughly speaking Greek, and half the church speaking Latin. And now we've come to a discussion of theology, a crucial issue. How are we going to define the Trinity? Well, it turns out the only people who can really have the sophistication to do this are the Greeks. They're the only ones who have a, a sophisticated language and sophistication in philosophy. The, rat, the Latins do not have this. They don't have it. Sorry. Sorry. Much as I am one myself, they don't have it. Augustine, for example, is a church father who simply could not read Greek, and he was a genius when it came. I, I identify with Augustine in many ways myself because he was a kind of journalist like me, uh, but he did not have a mastery of the Greek language. He couldn't do it. And so as a result, what you had uh, during these councils, and I'm talking now about the Arian crisis, which contested the divinity of Christ. Arius is a Greek-speaking uh, uh, basically, it goes back and forth between Antioch and Alexandria. And one taking the Alexandrians being the Orthodox, Orthodox, in other words, the people who believed in the Trinity, and the people in Antioch being Judaizers, who were, uh, wanted to go back to a mono, uh, uh, an obsolete monotheism. Arius took it, it, what it came down to at this point was a, a, a conflict between two Greek words. Homoousion, which means one in being, and homoousion. It comes out of one letter difference. Homoousion means like in being. Okay, now the, the Latin fathers couldn't take part in this because they didn't speak Greek. 
And so as a result, the, the, the Greek dominance uh, at this point had been established. Now, at this point, uh, you had, you know, historical development. In complicated ways, it was basically a battle between the eastern part and the western part of the empire that continued with groups like Venice interfering and the Crusades and attacking uh, Constantinople and so on and so forth. And the crisis came in the 15th century, which is basically Constantinople, the, the headquarters of the Greek, the Greek world, is under siege and the Turks are surrounding, marching on Constantinople. Now, the, the patriarch understands this. He needs help from fellow Christians, the Turks, against the Turks. He goes, they call the Council of Florence. And basically, the Orthodox come to Florence. And there's a beautiful picture about all the all their fantastic clothing that they wear. The, uh, the Italians had never seen anything like this. Uh, and it was the Medici that sponsored this. Now... Part of the problem here is the, the continuation of Neoplatonism in the East and the effect that it had on the Orthodox uh, because one of the people that came as an expert or a peritos was George Gamistos who brought Neoplatonic magic to Italy. And this is the beginning of paganism, the return of paganism to the, uh, Western Europe, and it was the Medici who did it because uh, Cosimo de' Medici met with the Gamistos and he told Ficino to translate the Hermetic Corpus into Latin, and that's the beginning of magic, the rebirth of magic in, in Europe, and that's a bad thing. So anyway, the, the patriarch says, look, we're not going to take no for an answer. You, have, you, you are not going to debate theology. We cannot afford to debate theology. I got the Turks at the gate. I need military help. And so you are going to heal the schism, the great schism. And they did. And that was over. They all agreed. And I think that they were sincere. I think that there was political pressure to do it. But anyway, they're sincere. And people like Basarion go back to where they came from, and the people, especially the Russians, reject it. They reject this theological solution because of, I think, ethnic reasons. And I think so as a result, orthodoxy took on an ethnic character at this point because it separated from the universality of the church. It just, it did not have, you did not have the same dynamic in the after this point in the East that you had in the West. Because what I'm saying is that the West then, because of Europe, conquered the world. It conquered the world because it was outward in its orientation, where it seems to me that the Orthodox ethnic churches were inward in their orientation. And they became, if, if, the classic example being the Russians. Russia, I mean, if you go, there's, I was in St. Petersburg, there's the Church of the Spilt Blood, and you look there, and there are plaques all around the church. Well, what do they commemorate? Well, they commemorate Russian armies defeating the Kazakhs and defeating the Uzbeks and so on and so forth. So there was this kind of inward turning because of its separation from the West that I think did not help the situation, did not help the situation. And so now, uh, to bring this full circle, I get invited to speak in Argos, Indiana, uh, to a group of people who are all Orthodox. I'm the only Catholic there. So 
I mean, the book is called Logos Rising. Logos is a Greek word. It seems to me that we're now at the point of universal consciousness where it's time to heal this schism. Actually, after I gave that little talk, the one guy, the Orthodox guy who organized the conference says he just healed the schism in 10 minutes. So anyway, that's the, that's the moment I think we're in right now. Oh, There's a town called Argos, Indiana. That's a Greek word as Argos, well. they were Argonauts, right? I said, why, where are the Argonauts? Yeah, why is there a Greek town in, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So another thing I would love for you to expand, uh, because I, I love your perspective, almost everything I've heard, everything I've heard actually, uh, um, the opening quote of Libido Dominani, which is uh, Augustine's quote, if you could remind us what it is. Uh, is that one that a man has as many masters as he has vices? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. for like a, 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 a rich man, though a king is a slave, uh, uh, and a poor man, though uh, even poor, a moral man, the immoral man, though a king is a slave, and the moral man, though though poor, is is uh, free because a man has as many masters as he has vices. This completely revolutionized the whole idea of freedom, uh, because uh, the Greeks did not have a clear idea of freedom. They did not have it. Uh, the uh, Aristotle, first of all, uh, Athens was a culture where you had to have slaves. The culture was based on slaves doing the work. Aristotle said at one point that if you were had to work for a living, you could not be a citizen of Athens because you had to attend too many meetings. You spent all your time attending meetings. This was the glory of Greece, that they talk so much. That's why Logos is a central concept here. This is the difference between Greeks and Persians. If the Greeks ha are planning to go to war, they have to have a discussion and everybody is involved in the discussion, all of the citizens, because all citizens had a meaning at that point. It doesn't have any meaning now. They were like, the Persians didn't do this. The Persian, uh, if the emperor of Persia is thinking about going to war, he, uh, uh, he has a dream. So the emperor has a dream, and I wonder what this dream means. And so he talks to people, and then he has the same dream again, and he thinks, this is proof that we should go to war, and then he goes to war, and they get defeated. Xerxes, yeah. yeah. So, this, so, in the, and, so I, I talked to this. I was, in, uh, I was in Persia. Actually, I was in Golestan talking to the head of Radio Golestan about this thing, and he said, yeah, it, exactly, the Persians didn't have this attitude toward Logos. If, if it was important, the Persians wouldn't talk about it. If it was really important, like let's say one of the fundamental principles of Zoroastrianism, you climb up to the top of a mountain where no one, and you carve it in stone, and then you wouldn't talk about it. It was secret. It was secret knowledge. That's what religion was. The Greeks had a completely different attitude, and that's why we're talking about logos now. And I don't know what the Persian word for logos is because we don't know. Uh, if you want to know what the Persians did, you have to read the Greeks. Because the Greeks, Herodotus is the only one who wrote about Persians. I said to this guy, where is the Persian Herodotus? Well, there isn't one. There isn't one. And that was the crucial contribution that Greeks made uh, to human history. And it became, so in a sense, we all, we all have to become Greeks. It's very simple. Uh, 
because the what's the alternative? The alternative is barbarism, or uh, oftentimes it's Judaizing uh, uh, as the opposite. Now, Christianity is obviously it's a combination of the Hebrew scriptures and Greek philosophy. Okay, the the Hebrews had history and no philosophy, and the Greeks had philosophy and no history. And if you put the two things together, they're called Christianity, and that means that not only does there uh, a history to Logos, but there's a Logos to history, and that's what that book is about. Great. So it's been an hour. Uh, would you like to say something to our Greek viewers? Yes, we're all Greeks now. That's why I wrote Logos Rising. Uh, yeah. But we're, we're Greeks in a transcendental sense now. And what we have to do is basically understand how the Greeks provided this word and this, this, this philosophy that is going to enable a worldwide conversation. Of course, we have to have this worldwide conversation because now the world is all under attack by, by the world has been united by this <clears throat> attack of biological warfare known as COVID. And so we have a globalism whether we want to do it or not. And the only question is, are we going to have a sophisticated philosophy that will allow us to deal with this globalism in a sophisticated fashion? And the answer mm -hmm. is, yes, we have that sophisticated philosophy and it's based on logos, which is a Greek word based on a Greek philosophy, based on a tradition that began where you live 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Great. Final question. Have you ever visited Greece? I've never been and to Greece. No, sorry. Sorry. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, I invite believe. me. Invite me and I will come and <laughs> and we'll drink, uh, uh, we'll dance on the beach with like Zorba or something like that. <laughs> drink... <laughs> Drink no Rakia is the Slav uh, is the Serbian drink. No, but anyway, we have no, we have a variation of it here as well. It's called Raki, Uzo, Tipuro, those things. Yes, yes. Yeah. Invite me and I will come. I'll be happy to come to Greece. I would love to come to Greece. Finally, right. see the place where I've been talking about for all these years. Great, great. Thank you so much for the podcast, uh, Doctor. It has Thank been you. a real pleasure for me, and Thank I'm you. very enlightening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Peace.